Well, good morning and welcome back from spring break. It is great to see you guys. Amazing weather, amazing morning today. Lord, it is great seeing you guys. If you have your Bibles, open to Hebrews chapter 9. It's where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 11 this morning. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. The author of Hebrews tells us this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, as we come back post-spring break, we come back before you. We thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for your kindness. And we thank you that you have, through the blood of Jesus Christ, made possible an opportunity for us to enter into the very holy of holies and to have a relationship with you, to know you personally and to know you intimately. And that through that great sacrifice, Lord, that you have done away with and you have dealt with the guilt that we find in our lives once and for all. And that you've given us a way to maneuver through in the aftermath of our own sins, our own weaknesses, our own mistakes in a way that nothing else and no one else ever could through the death and through the blood of your own son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would reset us as we come back from spring break, uh, that you remind us of your goodness, that you'd remind us of your grace, who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, as you guys come back, I want to kind of open up with just a simple question for you guys. Uh, How many of you guys actually believe that dogs, man's best friend, can actually feel guilt, feel shame? Uh, I want to submit to you guys some video evidence to maybe inform your opinion, all right? Uh, Here's a compilation of guilty dogs, all right? Do you? Do you have bad habits? Sometimes you do. Like, you lick everything. All the time, nonstop. Are you guilty? Did you do that? Did you do that? Did you dig into the grass? Lexi. Lexi. Why did you do that? All right, well. That's pretty much what I did all of spring break, just watch one guilty dog compilation after another. Just kidding. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I don't know how many of you have ever thought dogs feel guilty. They sure act and they sure look guilty, all right? But I'm going to give you guys a couple quotes uh, that actually scientists and researchers have actually concluded that dogs actually can't feel guilt. Uh, One of our own, Dr. Bonnie Beaver, a professor at Texas A&M's College of Veterinary Medicine, so she's clearly an expert, uh, says this, uh, just get over it and remind yourself not to put temptation in the way the next time. She's basically arguing to dog owners that to get over it, they don't feel guilt. And it is your responsibility to not put them in an environment where they could actually run across trouble because they're not going to feel shameful. Another uh, author, Pascal Limmer, says this uh, in a book that he uh, entitled Dog Shaming, which was a New York Best Times seller last January, which I can't imagine a whole book about dog shaming. But here you go. Uh, Here's what he says. I don't think dogs actually feel shame. I think they know how to placate us with this sad puppy dog look that makes us think they're ashamed of what they've done. My guess is this is what they're thinking. Oh man, my owner is super mad about something. 
I don't know what, but he seems to calm down every time when I give him the sad face. So let's try it again. All right. Dogs are smart. Can they feel shame? Can they feel guilt? I am not sure. Uh, Research is all over the place. Uh, As much as we don't know exactly what dogs are thinking or what they're feeling, guilt, though, is something that you and I are incredibly familiar with, right? We know what guilt feels like. We have experienced guilt before. Some of you guys coming off your spring break maybe feel guilt right now, right? Uh, That guilt is a very, very familiar feeling for us, but really our responses to guilt are all over the map. We typically respond to guilt when we feel, feel it in one of two different extremes. Either for some of us, we just find guilt to be an absolutely crushing load that just buries us completely. We can't get up, we can't move on, that guilt is like a, a, a rock tied on our neck and we just can't function. It's almost as if it's the dog that cowers, unable to move on, and we see God as this angry dog owner that's just screaming at us. Is that how you view God? Is that how you respond to guilt? The irony and the sad thing about it is that really as we look through our scriptures, we find that it is Satan who is our adversary, who the Bible referred to as our accuser, our slanderer. That he lives and what he does day in, day out, night after, night after, is that he's our accuser, that he stands before God and he just accuses us of of all of our wrongdoings. Hebrews 9 and verses, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 is going to give us a sense of how to respond to guilt and not in that kind of way. The other extreme for some of us is that we get buried by it. We're completely aware of our guilt and it crushes us. The other response for some of us is the guilt is like a faint whisper that we barely even notice and we just keep moving right past. Uh, We're the dog in a sense, if you want, uh, that even in the midst of a tantrum or in the midst of being in trouble, we just keep wagging our tail and doing whatever it is that we want to do. We rarely feel guilty. We rarely acknowledge guilt and we just do whatever we want to do. And the irony is that you and I have bought into a lie that we believe that in the absence of a judge, in the absence of one who can be a Lord over us that says what is right and wrong, we think we can find joy and we think we can find freedom. And the opposite is true. Uh, Marcy was reading or listening to a Tim Keller sermon this past week and ran across an incredible quote in which Tim Keller uh, responds to or or is quoting from uh, a play by Arthur Miller in which a character named Quentin says this about his own life. Listen to this incredible quote. Uh, This character Quentin says, For years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. Uh, when When you are young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are or what a good lover you are. Hopefully not too young, right? Uh, Then later on, you have to prove what a good father you are, what a good husband you are. And finally, you have to prove how wise you are, how powerful you are, how successful you are. But underlying it all, I see now in all of my arguing that there was a presupposition that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was. All I knew was that I would be justified or condemned for what I had done. There would be a verdict anyway. I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. I don't know for you, as you think about your life, if you find yourself constantly, time after time, trying to prove yourself to someone, trying to be approved of, trying to be justified before, constantly driven. And maybe even for you, you've thrown off God completely as if he doesn't exist or even if he does exist, like he's a weak dog owner who has no point or access to speak into your life. Maybe you're a little bit like the character Quentin and you're just trucking along until one day you realize that there's no one who's truly over your life. 
And when you wake up to that place and you wake up to that sense and you think that you have freedom, but what you find is that you have darkness and you have despair. Because to ignore the voice of a God who you are held accountable to actually lands you not in a place of joy and freedom, but in a place of absolute darkness and despair. So the character Quentin is speaking of, that one day he looked up and he realized the bench, the authority over his life there was non-existent. That he had removed God, he had removed everyone else, that he was constantly being driven for nothing and no one. For you and I, as we find guilt in our lives, we respond to it in one of two different extremes. Either A, it is crushing and it buries us so we can't even function. Or we just ignore it altogether and we just truck on doing what we want. And even in that scenario, we land up in a life that is wasted and meaningless and not fulfilling. See, as you think about guilt, sin and guilt, I think, are some of Satan's favorite tools. And as we think about our own lives, it's not sin that will define your life more often than not, but it is your response to sin that will define your life. Guilt is a feeling that we're all familiar with, but the question that will define your life is how will you respond to that guilt? Will you bend low and honor God who is a judge and authority over your life or will you blow past him and past any other authority in your life? Or do you find yourself just so crushed and destroyed by it that you can't even function? Either extreme, neither are helpful. Both are problematic. And what Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 are going to do is provide us a middle way a middle path that will navigate between those two extremes in a way that is incredibly helpful. And so really as we jump in Hebrew 9, I want to begin in Hebrew chapter 9, verse 9. And what I want you guys to see is that the writer of Hebrews is going to bring his people to an understanding that Jesus is going to be better than their guilt, that Jesus is going to provide them a way to navigate, not to either of these extremes, but in between them, that Jesus will provide a different pathway. And as he does that, he's going to move his audience to a place of absolute crisis first. The first thing you're going to see here is a crisis of conscience. Notice verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make, uh, uh, make the worshiper perfect in conscience. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 9 is that he's going to use the phrase conscience in chapter 9 and 10 about four or five different times. Then over and over again, he's speaking toward the conscience of humanity and to this understanding and this feeling, this sense of guilt that you, ha- you know I have, and he's going to provide us a middle road in how we respond to it. And a road that only Jesus has made possible, which is why he's going to argue here, I think that Jesus is better than your guilt. There's a better way to respond to the guilt that you experience in life. And as he does it, what he's going to do here for this audience is he's going to take the best effort that they could think of, especially with a group that had an understanding of the Old Testament. He's going to say, despite the Old Testament and the law's best efforts, that the best that humanity could come up with, it still did not actually cleanse or deal with the crisis of conscience that you and I all feel. The writer of Hebrews can say that gifts and sacrifices, they couldn't make perfect the worshiper. They couldn't absolutely cleanse the conscience that there was something wrong. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to highlight for his audience and for you and I that as we experience guilt, there is a crisis, crisis of conscience. What do we do? Something is wrong. Paul will say in Romans chapter 3 that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all sinned and fallen short. There's something wrong. We've fallen short of what God asks for and what he requires. And it creates a conscience or a crisis that we have to wrestle with. What are we going to do? And the writer of Hebrews is saying to this audience, no matter the best that you think that you can throw at this guilt issue, that your best still is not enough. 
Uh, some of you guys might have noticed this week uh, a player for Wisconsin on the basketball team uh, post uh, one of their games was on the podium with uh, two other players and uh, he ends up finding himself in a crisis of conscience moment that no matter what he wanted to do, he could not get out of it. And because of this little <laughs> mistake, he's had now seven and a half million people who've seen this clip. And some of you guys have seen it already, but here you go. Okay. Gosh, she's beautiful. <laughs> Did you hear that? All right. So we'll open it up to questions. <laughs> I love that clip. I'm just going to hold it right there, right? He has no idea that the mic is hot and he's in front of them for a press conference for the love, right? Clearly the mic is on. Clearly he's there to answer questions. And he turns to his buddy. I don't know if you could hear it. And he says, man, She's beautiful. Speaking toward a girl who's going to be taking notes of the interview and asking a question. And then he realizes the mic is hot. And he realizes that now everyone just heard that moment of complete indiscretion on his part, right? And actually, she's the one who answers and goes, yes, yes, we did hear that, right? (laughs) So he just buries his head in his hands because he realizes there's nothing he can do at this point, right? There is nothing that he can do to get himself out of this situation. So he just buries himself in his hands and wants to hide. But now seven and a half million viewers and you guys have all seen this clip. There's nowhere to hide, right? But for every single one of us, as we find ourselves with indiscretions, as we find ourselves having made mistakes or fallen short of what God has called us to, there's nothing we can do which is why we often kind of run to two different extremes. For some of us, we just feel so weighed down and buried by that that we can't even function. Or for some of us, we just blow off all authority whatsoever and go to the opposite extreme and just keep wagging our tail and doing whatever it is that we want to do. For the writer of Hebrews and for that Wisconsin basketball player and for you and I, we all recognize in the midst of our own mistakes, in the midst of our own sin, we are at a stalemate. We've got a problem that cannot be resolved no matter what we do. No matter what we do. So what the writer of Hebrews will do here in verses 11 and 15 is that he'll present Jesus Christ to them as one who can do something for them that they can't do for themselves. And the question will be, how do you move from crisis of conscience to a cleansing of the conscience? If you can't ignore it and if you can't be buried by it, then what is a middle way and how do you and I navigate between those two different extremes? And it's through the simple act of confession. That confession resolves the crisis of conscience so that we could be cleansed in our conscience. That it is going to be through confession. And what is confession exactly? Confession is simply put this way. It is the admission. It is the uh, owning of our own sin and our mistakes. It's fascinating as you look there, even at the general public, that when we see famous people make giant mistakes, even the general public has a response to them that is different when they just admit it. And when they continue to preserve their reputation, they continue to preserve their ego, that if they will just admit it, the general public responds incredibly differently to them. One of my favorite examples, biblically speaking, of denial or, or a, the opposite move of confession comes in the first sin of our Bible in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve commit sin, uh, they eat of the apple, the forbidden fruit that God had said not to eat from. And one of Adam's first remarks when God comes to him for accountability, what does he say? The woman that you gave me gave me the apple. Basically, Adam takes a machine gun of blame and just shoots everyone else that he can find except for himself, right? The woman, it's her fault. In fact, it's your fault because you gave me the woman that gave me the apple. So really, this all comes back to you, God. You're the problem. Great, great defense in front of the the sovereign king of the universe, right? That's going to work really well for you, right? 
But we do that all the time, right? We, we will maybe try to ignore, we will deny, we will do whatever we can to get out of the blame that is ours for our own mistakes and our own sin. That's what confession is. Confession is an owning up to and a grabbing hold of what we have said and what we admit it to be our mistake. And confession, when you and I do that, it does create a bit of a crushing reality. Uh, David, uh, actually in Psalm 51, uh, he will say, speaking of, um, I'm going to kind of quote over to it real quick, but he will speak of his own sin uh, when he commits a giant sin against Bathsheba. And what he says here in his own confession is really, really interesting. I'm going to read it for you. Psalm chapter 51, verse 8, David says this. Psalm 51, verse 8, he says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. That even in David's confession moment, he recognizes that in that moment, it's as if some of his bones have been broken. There's a breaking that occurs. In verse 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, and you will not despise that. That in the midst of our own sin, what God is looking for is just the willingness of us to say, You know what? I will own my mistake. I will own it. I will confess it. I will admit it to you. And our admission and confession to the king of the universe, to this specific priest, will make possible a response that's incredibly different. I said that we typically go to two different extremes. One is complete ignoring it, and the other is to be buried by it. And what's interesting is that confession provides us a middle road in which we do not ignore. But in this middle road, there is a moment of being burdened and broken. But it's a moment. And after that moment, we get up and we move on. And what confession does is it brings to us the reality of the consequences of our sins, the gravity of our sin, that we have transgressed God, that we have hurt people, and we own that. And in that moment, there is a breaking that occurs, but we don't stay there. We get up and we move on. Because we've confessed to a priest that can cleanse our conscience. Notice what he says in verse 11. Notice the nature of this priest. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He's repeating some ideas that we've seen already, that this priest resides and he serves in a better place than any of the other Old Testament priests. But it's not just that he's in a better place, he's got a better sacrifice as well. Verse 12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place. Now, these are ideas, these are themes that we've seen already, that this priest is superior, this Jesus as a priest is superior to all the other priests that have come in the Old Testament because he serves in a better place, he serves with a better sacrifice. We saw two weeks ago that he serves with a better set of promises. And here in chapter 9, with three simple words, the author of Hebrews is going to say something that he's not said yet. The new thing that he throws on the pile of this argument as to the superiority of Jesus' priesthood is three simple words. And notice what he says right there. He entered the holy place... Once for all. What this priest did for it to be adequate, for it to be satisfactory, he only had to do it one time. And in that, you're going to get something unfolding that is incredibly different than anything that we see from the Old Testament priests. Notice verses 25 and 28. Notice what he says about them in chapter 9. Verse 25 and 28, he says of these Old Testament priests, nor was it that Christ would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with a blood that is not even his own. That is, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus, this high priest, to the priest of the Old Testament. He says, look, the Old Testament priests, A, they came in with a sacrifice that wasn't their own blood. Jesus comes with his own blood. And secondly, they had to go year after year after year after year. And Jesus comes once. See, the, the actions that you and I have to do over and over and over again are often, often very unnerving. 
because they're not satisfactory. They're not complete. They're not sufficient. I'm absolutely unnerved most days that my my iPhone seems to have about a five-hour battery life, and then I have to plug it in. I'm constantly moving from one location to another looking for a power source. It's like my life is just draining down, right? If I'm on a call with someone and I'm at 10% on my phone, it's like I'm speaking as if these could be my last words of life forevermore, right? Because I don't know if I'll get back to a lifeline. I don't know if I'll get power again. I don't know if I'll ever speak to you again, right? Or I'll be blown away by the fact that maybe it's just me, but I can mow through a sleeve of Thin Mints in like five minutes, right? (laughs) And then I'm hungry, and I'm looking for the second sleeve, right? And I just keep mowing through, right? And I'm still hungry because that sleeve wasn't sufficient, so I want another tomorrow and the next day, right? There are so many actions in our life, whether you're refilling your car with gas, whether you're powering up your phone, whatever, that you have to do over and over and over again because the continualness of the action shows that it is not ultimately sufficient. But what Jesus does, he does once because it is ultimately sufficient. And it's very much like anything that they saw in the Old Testament with a system of laws and sacrifices and the priesthood. Notice what he says as he goes on, verse 26. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that Jesus, his action is so sufficient that he does not have to repeat it. It's done. And it's done for good. And it's done in a way that they never even saw modeled in the Old Testament because when Jesus is done, it's completely changed the game forevermore. Notice verses uh, 1 to 3 in chapter 10. Notice how the argument continues. The writer of Hebrews tells us, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is the very nature of the Old Testament system of sacrifices and laws and the the priests going in year after year proved that it wasn't the ultimate ideal. It never could make people perfect. Never. And the same is true for you and I, that no matter what efforts you do apart from Jesus Christ to get away from your guilt, to try to outweigh the bad with the good, it is never, never, ever enough. It can't make us perfect. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So in the Old Testament, under the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the law, they had a reminder year after year after year that they needed cleansing and that the best that they could do actually couldn't cleanse them enough. It couldn't make them perfect. In contrast, if one has actually been made perfect, then verse 2, there is no consciousness of sins. It's a fascinating statement. Kind of to roll right past it, typically. Notice verse 2 again. If the sacrifices had been perfect, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. That if a genuine cleansing of one's conscience has occurred, then there is not even a consciousness of the sins. Isn't that what the gospel and the beauty of the gospel is all about? (laughs) That Jesus, our high priest, has paid a sacrifice once, not year after year, once that was sufficient to completely cleanse our conscience. And if he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, if he has no memory of them, then why do we still have memory of them? Maybe because we haven't realized the sheer implication of what Jesus has done on our behalf. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, then this is a promise for you. That if you know him, if you've received uh, and believe in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then this is your hope. 
that you do not have to be buried by your sin. That you can confess it, that you can acknowledge that it has been cleansed, that sacrifice has been made for it, and then you can get up and you can move on. You don't have to be buried. Notice verse 13. Back to verse chapter 9. And this is where I want to wrap us up. Uh, the consequences and really what happens for us once cleansing has occurred is that we now have a confidence of our conscience. Notice verse 13. He's going to make a comparison again in the Old Testament when he says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. What he's saying is that the Old Testament and the sacrifices of the law were good. They did have a benefit. They had a benefit for the people of God as they came before God, as they confessed their sins. And that sacrifice, it had a good. It did sanctify them. It did mature them. It did restore their relationship to God, but it couldn't make them perfect. It was a picture of of a greater sacrifice that was coming one day. But if it was helpful and if it was fruitful, then notice the comparison in verse 14, then how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Notice what it can do. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the beauty of what this cleansing does, is that the person of Jesus Christ, the priest of Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice that was his own blood, a blood that was unblemished compared to all the other sacrifices of the Old Testament that were blemished animals, therefore, that had to be done over and over and over again as a temporary covering that this sacrifice of an unblemished Savior, an unblemished sheep, can absolutely and fully cleanse our conscience of all past, present, and future sins. What an incredibly different sacrifice. What an incredibly different priest. And if that Old Testament system was helpful and good, how much greater is this? Do you understand what an incredible privilege you and I have that we live in this age, in the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That we have a hope that we could celebrate even at Easter this upcoming week. That not just that our Savior died, but that he was resurrected. That he has power over death and life. That not only can he cleanse our sins, not only can he save us from the grave, but even more, where verse 14 ends, we can serve the living God. That to me is a real distinction here. That's really where I want to wrap up for you, is that really when you and I realize the sheer implications of what Jesus Christ has done for us, it forever changes our own sense of conscience. That if we've been made perfect, then we don't need to have a consciousness of our sins. And that is what the adversary, the devil, does. That he just accuses over and over and over again. Yes, I think God does convict us. Yes, God does bring up to mind where we have faulted. But so that we will come to him in confession, we will confess it, we'll gravitate and understand its depth, and then we get up and we move on to do what? To serve the living God. What does it entail? What does it require that you and I have an opportunity to even serve the living God? It's not perfection, right? It's not perfection. That often as we think about knowing God, walking with God, we often have this understanding in our minds that it takes perfection. That's not at all what the writer of Hebrews is going to say. I want to wrap up for you guys in verse 19 of chapter 10. Notice the result when you and I grasp what Jesus Christ has done for us. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That if you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you have a relationship with him who is creator, who is sustainer and future heir of the world, then you have absolute confidence to enter his presence, knowing that he has cleansed your conscience once and for all, and that you can come boldly and you can come confidently. 
You don't have to ignore your sin. You don't have to be buried by it. But you can come before one who's paid the cost for that sin so that you can get up and move on. Honestly, as we go into April, this to me is often where you guys start making lots of decisions about next year and what you're going to be doing next year. And one of the challenges I want to give you is simply this. As, it, as chapter 9, verse 14 ends, it's this. It says, so that we can serve the living God. My question for you is simple this morning. It's this. What does God have in store for you next year? And as you think about next year, as you think about opportunities that maybe he's already putting in front of you, I think a lot of us, as we look at those opportunities and as we pray through them, all of a sudden we start getting a highlight reel of all of our mistakes, all of our indiscretions, that if people only knew... <laughs> Who are we to think that we have anything to offer? Who are we to step into an organization on campus and try to lead or have influence? Who are we to represent Christ? Who are we? I think the greater question is, who is our high priest? Who is our Savior? And what has he done on our behalf? As you think about guilt and as you experience guilt, which extreme do you go to? Do you find yourself constantly reminded about it, constantly buried underneath it? Or are you able to maybe move to the other extreme where you just ignore it altogether and you just keep doing whatever you want, wagging your tail even in the midst of your own indiscretions? Which extreme do you fall on? And what would it look like to come before the Lord, the King of the universe, and confess your sin, maybe to actually enter into a relationship with him for the very first time? And doing that to recognize that he has cleansed you, that he has made you perfect and adequate for him as to what he will call you to. Uh, this is a season for us, even as a church, that we talk about leadership here in our college ministry. Uh, one of the opportunities I want to put in front of you guys as you think about next year is that right now our applications are up online. You can apply to lead in our local church. We would love to have you consider that. I'm sure your table host will be talking to some of you guys about that as well. We'd love for you to consider, hey, would you be willing to come lead in our own college ministry or lead in our local church in some setting next year? It may not just be our local church. So there's all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of organizations on campus. And the question is, as you look at April and as you look at next year, the question is, what does the Lord have for you? And my question that I want to drill down in on you guys this morning is, what is guilt saying to you as you navigate through some of those decisions? Is guilt uh, a barrier that is preventing you from actually considering what God could do through you? And if so, it might be time to reconsider how you navigate and respond to guilt. Sin is not a disqualifier. What we do in the aftermath of sin can be the disqualifier. To confess our sins, to get up and move on and see what the Lord has. That perfection is never the requirement to lead on his behalf or to represent him. A broken heart, a contrite spirit, and a willingness to confess and to move on and to believe that he's cleansed your sin and called you to great things, that is the requirement. And whatever context that he's moving you, whatever context that he's challenging you to, what we're going to do as we wrap up this morning is we're going to give you guys an opportunity to celebrate and experience communion as a table. And so the band's going to come up. And really what I think communion is is an incredible picture of what we've been talking about this morning. That as we celebrate communion as a church body, as those that have trusted in Jesus Christ have an opportunity to participate in this, what we are picturing is that Jesus Christ in his death uh, provided us an opportunity to be united with him in his death so that we are buried to an old life and his resurrection is a picture of our being risen to a new life, which is exactly what Hebrews 9 and 10 is talking about. The communion is that picture that Jesus has given himself up so that our guilt, our sin, our mistakes do not prevent a tomorrow, that they do not prevent what he could have in store for us as we get up and as we serve in a new living way, a new living inaugurated way that he's made possible as he's opened up the curtain so that we could walk through. And what I want to do as we wrap up and as I pray is I want to give you guys some time to wrestle with 
Uh, A, are there some guilt and some sins that you need to confess? And so as we have an opportunity before we take communion, I want you to come before the Lord and just simply ask him, Lord, what is it you want me to see? Take that courageous moment where you come before him and you say, Lord, what is it? Where is it I've fallen short? What is it you want to reveal to me? And then help me to come before you and confess it and help me to get up and believe that you have something even better for me. This isn't a limiter of my tomorrow. This isn't a limiter of what you want to do in my life, but help me to believe you. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace that even as we come back from spring break, no matter decisions that we've made, no matter uh, whether they've been big or small, no matter what it's looked like in the midst of the discretionary time that we've had, I thank you that your son's death is always available that it proves once and for all that you can deal with sin, that you can deal with guilt, that you can provide a different way. And Father, I pray this morning just that you would give us an opportunity to quietly come before you and just to reflect and to ask you, what is it you want me to see? Might we be courageous enough to give you that space and to give you that time and to let you process with us that we could own our sins and we wouldn't deny it and that you would then get it, allow us to move up and move on and to trust you and to serve you in whatever it is that you're calling us to. I thank you that your grace is sufficient. I thank you that your grace is always abounding. It always abounds over our sin. And you always invite us into a new way. Lord, might you speak into our lives and might you give us a time to reflect and might you speak to us now, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.